few years ago, uh, Jonathan Gibson wrote this small children's uh, book. And he wrote it um, out of a, a dark time in the life of, of his life and the life of his family. Uh, he had an older child, uh, about four or five years old, and his wife was pregnant with their second child. Um, they lost the child um, in uh, utero, and the second child was born, uh, stillborn. And Dr. Gibson was struggling as he was working through the grief process with his, with his older child. And out of that conversation came this beautiful children's book. And so just as a heads up, if you don't have a tissue, find one, um, because I'm going to read it. The book begins um, with his child's perspective. It says, when I look up on a sunny day, the sky is blue and bright and jet planes, white, uh, jet planes paint white lines on its canvas. When I look up on a stormy day, the sky is gray and dull and clouds pour rain and flash and boom with lightning and thunder. When I look up on a summer's evening, the sky is red and orange and purpley pink and the sun looks like it's falling from the sky on fire. When I look up on a clear night, the sky is dark and the stars twinkle and sparkle like diamonds, but the moon isn't always round. Dad said the moon is always round, even when you can't see all of it. When Dad told me that I was getting a little sister, the moon looked like a banana, but Dad said the moon is always round. I'm doing a really bad job holding that open. When the crib was put together and the moon looked like a slice of an apple, but Dad said, the moon is always round. But when Mommy's tummy began to look like a watermelon, the moon looked like a shriveled orange, and Dad said, the moon is always round. Even when I was told that my little sister wasn't coming to live with us after all the waiting, Dad said, the moon is always round. When my parents left in the middle of the night for the hospital and the next morning I went off to preschool, I thought, will the moon be round tonight? And Dad said, the moon is always round. When I waited at the hospital to meet my little sister and we left without her, I asked, why, Daddy? And he replied, I don't know why, but the moon is always round. When we got home from the hospital, I looked for the moon before bed. It was a half moon, but Dad said, the moon is always round. And when it was still just the three of us and we went to the church to say goodbye, my dad asked me, what shape is the moon? I said, the moon is always round. And dad said, what does that mean? I said, God is always good. Darkness comes into our lives in a lot of different forms. It often looks like death. Somebody that we love. It can look like desperation brought on through loss of a job the breakdown of a marriage, the diagnosis of a disease. Darkness can take the form of difficulties in a world ravaged by sin and conflict. It can be a spirit that is depressed with sadness. And in these dark times, it's easy for us to doubt the goodness of God. As his character and his person is overshadowed oftentimes by the circumstances of our lives. And when this doubt arises in our hearts, unfortunately for many of us in the church, 
who've been raised especially in the church, an even deeper problem that we face is not the fact that God's goodness seems to be overshadowed by the difficulties of our situation. It's often that we don't have a clue what to do with how we feel about it. We've been so well trained by our parents and the authorities in our lives to not talk back to not argue, to just be obedient, that we leave our doubts and difficult feelings bottled up inside of us where they rot. And then they poison us from the inside out. The book of Habakkuk is a beautiful book of hope for people in dark situations, people with big feelings and even bigger fears. The message of Habakkuk to you and to me is that God is bigger than our biggest fears and big enough for our biggest feelings. Look with me in Habakkuk chapter 3 as we will read how this book ends. Habakkuk cries out in song, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's feet. He makes me tread on my high places. Would you pray with me? Father, you are a big and mighty God. Bigger than we could ever dream. Bigger than we could ever imagine. And yet, despite how big you are, Heavenly Father, and despite the fact that you are bigger than everything that is bigger than us and everything that we, are fe- we would fear, you are still the God who invites us near. You are still the God who's big enough for all of our difficult feelings and dark emotions and despair. You are the God who invites us as a good father to climb into your lap in our most difficult times and realize that no matter what it may look like, the moon is always round and you are always good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Habakkuk is different than any of the rest of the minor prophets. I mean, really any of the rest of the majority of the prophets. Much like Jonah was very different in its format, Jonah was a narrative, and we read a story. Habakkuk is a conversation, not from, with the prophet and the people. It's not a declaration against anyone else. Habakkuk is a conversation. It is a prayer between Habakkuk and God. A back and forth takes place, and the verses that we read are the end of the book, and it is a beautiful declaration on Habakkuk's part, of his faith in the Lord. And that declaration of faith is meant for more than just the prophet because the part that I didn't read but that ends the book, nevertheless, is that Habakkuk wrote this to the choir master with stringed instruments. 
the book ends in chapter 3 with a song that Habakkuk delivered to the temple for the people to sing together. Habakkuk is inviting his audience, he is inviting us to sing the praises of God in the face of the darkest circumstances. But for us to fully appreciate how Habakkuk ends, we have to understand the journey that he has taken to get here. We have to learn how Habakkuk learns that God is bigger than our biggest fears and he is big enough for our biggest feelings. In this book, Habakkuk declares God to be bigger than our biggest fears. To say that Habakkuk is concerned would be an understatement. The book of Habakkuk opens with this phrase, the oracle of Habakkuk, the prophet, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. The word oracle there is a declaration, it is, but it has also translated in different places and as a word family in the Old Testament as a burden, a message that is weighing upon him, like a woman who is, is pregnant with this child in anticipation of the day that she is going to bring it forth into the world. Habakkuk is given a burden that he must carry and declare and deliver to the people. And that burden that he must carry that is weighing him down, what is heavy on his heart, we see in verses 3 and 4 of Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk declares to God, Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is burdened because when he looks at the world around him, he sees sin and wickedness. He sees the law ignored. He sees the poor beaten up and oppressed by the powerful. And to fully understand the burden that is on Habakkuk's heart, we have to understand and properly locate the sin that is so concerning to him. We have to realize that Habakkuk is talking to the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, who had received the covenant promises of God. When we think about national Israel, the most real equivalent of that today is not the United States of America, it's the church of God. The covenant people of God who have received the promises of God. When Habakkuk looks at these people, he sees these people, the people that are supposed to bear the name of God, are living wicked lives that denounce his character. His heart is not broken by some geopolitical reality. His heart is broken because the very people who bear the name of God are acting more like the enemy of God. And so when we read Habakkuk, it's not an invitation necessarily to condemn the world. It's an invitation to examine the church and our hearts and our lives and look at our people and find out is wickedness characterizing us. And that's what breaks his heart. But what he's afraid of is as he looks at all of this, he sees God doing nothing to fix it. And so he's terrified about what that could mean about God. God, have you just abandoned us? Have you walked away from the throne? 
Like Baal, have you fallen asleep? Or is everything that I believe to be true about you wrong? Do you really not care at all? Are you actually wicked at your core? And this is what is right. He's terrified. He's on the brink of hopelessness because everywhere he looks, he sees the powerful perpetrating the problem and he sees nobody rising up within the people of God to fix it. So God answers Habakkuk's complaint in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. When I read that, or at least read what Habakkuk's response is going to be, what comes to my mind is that scene from Top Gun when Maverick is flying and he's got Goose in the back seat. And they're flying this, I don't remember if it's an exercise or if it's the final battle scene or whatever else. And he tells Goose that, he said, uh, Goose asks him, what are you doing? He said, I'm letting him get closer. And Goose's eyes get as big as softballs and says, what? When God responds to Habakkuk that he says, I don't see anybody coming, rising up within the people of God to fix this. God says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And Habakkuk goes, what are you talking about? God is taking Habakkuk and inviting Habakkuk and inviting you and me to realize, to look beyond just the people of God, to realize that the entire earth is the Lord's. And sometimes our view, we end up with such tunnel vision and so finite in our understanding of things, we can't see God's solution because we are living in our expectations of what God should do instead of an openness to what God will do. And so God says, look beyond the borders of Israel and you will see that I am raising up the Babylonians to come. And God gives us in the the verses that follow 7 through 11, God gives us a very clear character that these are not good people. They're even worse than the Assyrians. And they're coming in all of their evil. They are men of verse 11 and they're a nation who worship their own might and strength because nobody can stand before them. And they are conquering the world. And so Habakkuk's response is, what are you talking about? Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, God, you who are of purer eyes than to look on evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at the treacherous, the traitors inside of Israel, and then remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk cries out, how is this possible? God, how can you who are so perfect and pure that you can't even look upon evil, somehow intending to pick up this wicked people and use them as an instrument to discipline your children. We're pretty bad, but we're not as bad as those Babylonians. And you're going to let those Babylonians beat us up? You're actually going to bless them in conquering us? How in the world is that possible? And Habakkuk's brain is on overload at this point. So he commits at the beginning of chapter 2 to take his stand and watch for God to answer his prayer and to make all this make sense. And this is an important lesson for you and for me. Because what we see in this exchange between God and Habakkuk is the declaration that God is not limited in the same ways that you and I are. 
He's not required to answer our prayers according to our expectations or preferences. Part of God being God is that he can and will answer us on his timetable and according to his plan and his agenda. So when Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 11 to pray, and he says, ask and keep on asking, continue to bring your requests to the Lord. The second thing is seek and keep on seeking. It's not just to lay your list in front of God and then just expect him to do it. No, the exercise of your faith is that once you lay your prayer request before the Lord, you begin looking for the ways that God is going to choose to answer that prayer. And it may not look like you expect it to. So therefore, you should be seeking God and seeking how it is that he is choosing to work within your life. Part of waiting on the Lord, part of hoping in God, is searching for and humbly submitting to how God chooses to answer our prayers and not how we want him to. So maybe you and I have been asking God to work or do something or, or answer a prayer, but our expectation is so limited that like Habakkuk, we need to lift our eyes and look beyond and see what God is doing around us. And maybe God's answer is there. And the hope that we're looking for and longing for is outside of our plan and instead in God's. And so we need to surrender ourselves like Habakkuk does and who waits upon the Lord. And in waiting upon the Lord, the Lord responds, but again, not necessarily in the way that Habakkuk would have wanted him to. God responds in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, with basically this, just wait and see. Right? Habakkuk is, is burdened by the sin he sees in the people of God. And he cries out, God, why aren't you doing anything? And God says, I am doing something. I'm bringing the Chaldeans to discipline my people. And he says, wait, God, how is that okay? And God says, wait and see. Right? Chapter 1, verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And God immediately goes into verse 4 of chapter 2, and he says, Behold, his, that's Babylon, Babylon's soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. See, Habakkuk's vision is not only limited geographically or geopolitically, it's limited chronologically as well. He can only see what's about to happen. He can only see that these wicked, evil people, the Babylonians, are coming and promised by God to discipline and destroy Jerusalem. What he can't see is God's eternal purposes and plans, that that is not the end of Jerusalem, that God's plans extend even beyond the destruction of this city in this time, that God's promises will never fail. And so he invites Habakkuk to wait. And the righteous ones... The ones in a right relationship with the Lord not only believe and trust in God, but they exercise their belief and their trust in God as they wait on him, especially when the world grows darker and more difficult around them. God invites Habakkuk to wait and instead exercise his faith as he anticipates what the Lord is going to do. So even when our assessments of the events of the world that are around us call God's character into question, we must hold firm not to what we see, not to what we anticipate, not to what we fear, not to what we fret, but to what we know as declared by God in his word is true of his character. 
And we must choose to hold fast to what we know to be true about the Lord. To hold fast, Paul tells us, to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the declaration of our salvation in him and God's guarantee of the end of the world. We must hold firm to our understanding of who God is and trust that he is bigger than our biggest fears. So the vision that Habakkuk then gets from God that we read in verses 6 through the end of chapter 2 is this vision of the very ones that Babylon has been conquering and Babylon will conquer in the future, the very, those very ones rising up and taunting Babylon. There are five woes in chapter 2, and they are taunts from the very people that Babylon has destroyed. And in each one of them, they declare that the very things that Babylon seems to value prop themselves up as evidence of their power and their strength are going to be the very witnesses against them in the end that will justify their destruction. In every single one of them, there's a declaration that as good as Babylon thinks they are, the wealth that they have accumulated in the first woe, the houses that they have built on the backs of those that they've conquered in the second woe, the cities that they have established on bloodshed in the third woe, the humiliation that they have heaped upon the people that they have destroyed in the, third, in the fourth woe, and the gods that they have built for themselves are all being added to the scales of their judgment and end the end as great as they think that they are, it will be proven they are not as great as God. As he declares in chapter 2, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I don't know about you, but there ain't an inch of the ocean that's not wet, right? There's not an inch of the sea that's not wet. And God's promise is that there will be in the end not an inch of this earth that is not covered with his glory and touched by his hand, and redeemed by his grace, and restored by his goodness. Not even Babylon can stop that, and not even the wickedness of his own people. And when Habakkuk sees this, when Habakkuk receives the promise that God will eventually do something in Babylon, he gets an entirely new vision of the Lord. Not a vision of the Lord sitting back with his arms folded, frustrated, and taking a nap or eating chips and watching a football game or anything else. Instead, chapter 3 is a battle hymn of heaven. As God clothes himself in his armor and enters in the world in all of his power and all of his authority and all of his might, and he destroys everything that we would be afraid of and proves that he is bigger than our biggest fears. And so Habakkuk worships him as this God who's bigger than our biggest fears. Chapter 3 is this glorious anticipation of what God is going to do on behalf of his people, even if Habakkuk never gets to see it. And so Habakkuk is able to conclude with this glorious praise that he says, even though the verses that we read earlier, 16, he said, listen, as I'm looking at the events of my world, and I'm looking at Babylon, I'm looking at the sin inside, and I'm looking at Babylon bearing down on us. He said, my response to that is my body trembles, my lips quiver, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. He says, when I look at the events of my life, I am petrified, I am terrified. But, regardless of what happens to me now, regardless of what happens to my people, 
regardless of whether or not I see it, regardless of whether or not the entire economy falls flat on its face. Because they're an agrarian society, right? So whether the fig tree should blossom, whether the fruit vines should be empty, whether the produce of the olive should fail, whether the fields are yield no food and the flocks be cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stall, right? Their entire economic system collapses regardless of it all. My hope will be in the Lord. And I will choose to worship Him. And you will find me singing when the difficult times come. Habakkuk is reminded and has been reminded through his conversation with the Lord that God is bigger than his biggest fears. But here's the second major thing about the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is only free to experience and come to understand God is bigger than his biggest fears because he knows that God is big enough for his biggest feelings. The book of Habakkuk is a lamentation. It's a lament. Michael Card, the singer-songwriter, defines a lament as a difficult conversation with God. The problem that you and I have, at least that I know that I had growing up in the church, I was never taught that it's okay to take God, my anger, and my frustration, and my hurt, and my failure. We were never taught to lament. There are certain Christian traditions that have clung to. The African-American church tradition has clung to lament. Singing out their woes and their wails before the Lord as they look upon the world around them and the injustice that exists there and they continue to cry out for the Lord. But in my tradition, in the Southern Baptist tradition, the conversation and the, the dialogue of lamentation was lost a long time ago. And it was exposed as missing in the heart and the life of the evangelical church on September 11th of 2001 when Michael Card wrote a friend of his and said, I don't know what to do this Sunday morning because there are no songs in our repertoire that deal with how we really feel right now. But the Bible is filled with people having difficult conversations with God. Have you ever had to call out somebody in authority in your life? Have you ever had to go to your boss and say, hey, listen, stuff's not right, and you're sleeping on the wheel. You're asleep at the wheel. Things are going wrong. You need to get your gear, you know, get yourself in gear, and we need to fix some things. You have to have a diff some of you have had difficult conversations with me. Sometimes we've got to have difficult conversations with our parents. It's an intimidating thing. Can you imagine having a difficult conversation with God? This one who is the divine warrior who clothes himself in lightning and who tramples the earth and makes the seas run from his presence? Can you imagine having that difficult conversation with God? And yet look at how Habakkuk comes to the Lord in Habakkuk chapter 1. He says, why God? Lord, how long am I going to call out to you and you're not going to do anything? He says, how long? He says, why is this happening? Are you asleep at the wheel? I'm crying out and I'm begging and I'm asking and God, you're choosing to do nothing. And then when God answers him, his response is a second lamentation. How could you? 
as bad as we are, how could you use the Babylonians against us? How could you handle sinners like that? How could you pick them up and use them? And you know what God never does in all of this? He never scolds Habakkuk for bringing him these questions. He never shuts him up. He never shuts him down. He never says, how dare you? How dare you approach me like that? Know your place. That might be how we would handle being questioned. That's never how God is. Because God's not only bigger than our biggest fears, He's big enough for our biggest feelings. Brothers and sisters, you and I will never, and I'm going to say this boldly, never have all the answers. The Bible does not say that when you die and you get in in presence of Jesus Christ that you're going to figure everything out. God and God alone is omniscient. Just because you're dead doesn't mean that you're privileged at all of the answers that you didn't get in this life. We will never be infinite in our understanding and our knowledge. We will always be limited. We will always be limited by our view and our understanding and our experiences. And so guess what? As finite creatures who don't understand everything, we are going to have doubts and fears. We are going to have difficult experiences and difficult emotions. Faith is not the absence of fear, nor is it the absence of doubt. Faith is dealing with our doubts and our fears by coming to the one that we believe has the answer to them. That's faith. Someone who says, I don't doubt anything. I'm going to call you a liar to your face. Our doubts make us stronger. When we don't run from them, but we seek to find answers to them. Faith is what we do with those doubts and fears. And what God invites us to do and wants us to do is bring them to Him. Knowing that He's never going to shut us down. Knowing He's never going to shut us out. Instead, as children who come to the Father with difficult questions and big issues and problems in our lives, God is going to receive us into His presence and patient and be patient. Patient with our grief. Patient with our doubts. Patient with our fears. Patient with our temper tantrums too. Because God is bigger than all of those biggest feelings. God wants us to deal with them in His presence because that's the safest place to do so. And He invites us and welcomes us into that safe space where He will deal with them. Habakkuk was received into God's presence to deal with his fears and to deal with his hard feelings. And we are now in an even better position than Habakkuk because we have Jesus. We have the one who has proven himself already to be bigger than our biggest fears, right? In his song of declaration, Habakkuk declares that God is the one who is going to come and he is going to crush the head of the house of the wicked in verse 13. From the very beginning of the book of of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God promised that one day someone was going to show up who was going to do what? Crush the head of the serpent. To crush the head of the wicked. 
That promised one is Jesus Christ. Habakkuk points back to the problem that started in the garden. Habakkuk points forward to the one who prayed in the garden. God, would you, Father, would you please take this cup away from me? Jesus didn't hold back his difficult feelings from God. Jesus begged God for there to be any other way than for him to drink the cup of God's wrath for your sin and for mine. He brought his difficult feelings to the point that he was sweating blood in the presence of God. And yet he crushed the head of the house of the wicked for you and for me because he obeyed the Father by going to the cross to die the death that he didn't deserve but that we do that we might be forgiven of our sin. But not only that we might be forgiven of our sin, but that we might be received. Jesus said, I am the door and I am the way. Jesus didn't just open the door. He paved the way that we might be brought into the very presence of God. That we might come to him not as slaves and not as sinners and not even as servants, but as friends and family, as sons and daughters of God, to be welcomed to the feet of the Lord into the very lap of God that he might lavish his love upon us. And for all of those who are in Christ, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter how dark the world may get, no matter how desperate my circumstances may seem, I know that I have a friend who is a friend of sinners who draws near to me in my dark times and my difficult emotions and doesn't run away from me in those times, but has instead proven himself to be faithful so that even when I am not faithful... I am still loved and accepted and wanted by God. Not because I deserve it, but because Jesus has bought it. And so I can come to God with all of my doubts. And I can come to God with all of my fears. And I can come to God with all of my difficult feelings. Because Jesus is bigger than all of my fears. And Jesus is big enough for all of my biggest emotions. And Jesus wants me. Jesus loves me. Jesus is for me. God loves you. God wants you. God is for you. And no matter what shape the moon may be, it is always round. And God is always always good.